0: I'm sure you are well aware of this, but my wife and I, Hannah, we have a one-year-old son named Samuel. And Samuel likes to go outside. And so we, a little bit about our family, uh, we we have three dogs. Two of them are really little, one of them's kind of not. But you know, we, just like any other family that has dogs in a backyard fenced in, we let them to go outside occasionally. And I have a little bit of a garden I'm working on, so I'll go out there and water the plants. And anytime our back door is unlocked to go outside, Samuel will run over there, grab the knob, pull it down, somehow open the door, and then run out the door. And uh, when he is outside, usually, any other time, any other place, except here and when he's outside, go figure, uh, when I go and call to him to come to me so I can pick him up and carry him wherever, he usually obediently comes, you know, because he, he loves me. I'm his favorite, right? And then, but when we are outside or when we're here at the church, I will call his name. I will say, come here, let's go inside. And that kid, nine times out of 10, is running in the opposite direction of me. Like just yesterday, he's, he's got his socks on because, you know, I'm that dad. I don't put shoes on before we go outside, okay? We're just gonna let him run around and if he catches something, he just catches something, right? And so he's got his socks on. Usually he just stays right there on the concrete porch, no problem, I'm watering the plants, dogs are running around. And he gets into the grass And I'm like, Samuel, let's go inside. And he turns and looks, smiles, and towards the fence. He is gone. So I'm chasing him, you know, in my socks, through the wet grass, and he's just, you know, he's having a great time. And just, just heading off in the exact opposite direction of where I desire him to be. Well, if that don't sound like somebody we know from the Old Testament, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Before we get to Jonah, though, and that's where we're going this morning, uh, we have this great opportunity to know Christ better as we conclude our summer series today. See, we have been walking through this series where we've been exploring how the Old and the New Testament come together to point to Jesus Christ. There are some in our world who would say that there is a disconnect between the Old and New Testaments. A common misconception today is that the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and anger against sin, while the God of the New Testament is loving and kind and pursues peace. But this is not not true though. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And who He is, is fully revealed in Christ Jesus, whom both testaments make known. We have primarily been exploring this through the study of Jesus and a different figure uh, found in the Old Testament. So we've studied uh, Jesus and Abraham, we've studied Jesus and David, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and, and Adam, and today we are studying Jesus and Jonah. So if you're a note taker, like to take notes, that's the sermon title for this morning, Jesus and Jonah. Our text for this morning, We will be. A, we will be all throughout the book of Jonah, but we are starting out this morning in the book of Matthew. Okay, so if you have your Bible, whether it be paperback copy or hardcover copy or on your cellular device, go ahead and get it open to Matthew chapter 12. We will be in verses 38 through 41. And as you get there, it's helpful for us to know the background, the context that we are looking at here in Matthew 12. And so in the earlier part of this chapter, Jesus heals a man who was possessed by demons. Uh, These demons had made this man both blind and mute, so he couldn't see, nor could he speak. And the people who are present at this healing are amazed. And a question is posed. Can this be the son of David? And the way the text sets this up It reads like sort of a rumor being spread among the masses. In fact, verse 23 of Matthew 12 says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? This rumor is spreading, and it reaches the ears of our beloved Pharisees. And well, they're going to have something to say about it. The next verse says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man, referring to Jesus, casts out demons. Let's consider what we just read for a moment. Jesus' fame is growing. The message of his miraculous power is spreading. People are beginning to ask the right questions that would identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah that they have long awaited for. And how do these Pharisees react? They actually accuse him of being in cahoots ...with Satan's cohorts. They accuse the Son of God of being in league with demons. The one whom is going to step on the head of the serpent... ...is being accused of being allied with this serpent. And Jesus is going to speak to their accusations from verses 25-32. to Now that passage of Scripture is fantastic and it deserves its own sermon or or two at some other time. But what we see from Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41 is being built upon is an identity issue. Who is Jesus? Could he be the son of David, the Messiah? That's the question that's being asked. If you continue reading through Matthew 12, you'll see that Jesus does a lot of the speaking. For those of you who have red letter Bibles, it's all read there. Right before our passage today in verses 33 through 37, he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Now that's awesome. And reveals the truth that what is within a person is going to come out of a person. Verse 35 says, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And that there is coming a judgment in which every person will be held accountable, specifically in this passage, the words that they have spoken. So that is in verses 36 and 37. So the people have asked, Is Jesus the Son of of David. And the Pharisees have said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So what comes next then? Well, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then give us a sign. The Pharisees and the scribes, we're going to see, demand a sign. And so let's find out how Jesus responds to these Pharisees and these scribes. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. It will be on the screen if you'll follow along with me. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, Will you pray with me? Lord, please reveal your truth to us this morning. Reveal who you are to us this morning. Many are asking the question, who is Jesus? And I pray that this morning that we would see him as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior. Thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Pharisees and scribes demand a sign. Jesus' response? I love these words. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's going to go on and explain this a bit more in detail. First, he compares Jonah's stay uh, in the belly of the great fish to his coming stay in the heart of the earth. Second, he says the men of Nineveh, who were an evil people but repented at the preaching of Jonah, uh, will condemn this generation who are seeking after signs, and who are ultimately refusing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And thirdly, Jesus claims that something greater than Jonah is among them. Now, a couple of things before we get to the book of Jonah. These words are not the only time that Jesus has spoken regarding the sign of Jonah. They appear again in Matthew chapter 16 and again in Luke 11, and all three times being used when the audience demands a sign as proof of who he is. And the proof that they'll get, the proof that we get today, is in the sign of Jonah. Now does, does that mean some, some of the younger kids in this room may be thinking, "Is Jonah about to appear and like tell everybody there that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, no he, he's not going to make an appearance, kiddos. This isn't a Marvel movie crossover where Captain America is all of a sudden an Iron Man's movie, okay? We, but we've already seen from this text that Jesus likens himself to Jonah by referencing his death, burial, and resurrection. Today, Jesus, we are going to see, is the greater Jonah, which really brings us to the heart, and some of you may think the start of our sermon this morning. In what ways are Jesus and Jonah similar? In what ways, when we compare the story of Jonah and the life of Jesus, do we find that Jesus is indeed the greater Jonah? Let me illustrate it with three key words this morning. Obedience, suffering, and salvation. If you would, let's take a little trip over to the Old Testament where we find a wayward prophet prophet by the name of Jonah. We'll be looking throughout the book of Jonah for the next several minutes as we compare, once again, his story to the life of Jesus. And so, obedience is our first word this morning. Obedience. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Three times the writer of Jonah mentions the destination of Jonah after the Lord has called him to go to Nineveh, Tarshish. Most maps will place the port city of Tarshish in what is current day Spain. Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction of the way that God told Jonah to go. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, which is north by northeast of Israel. Tarshish is directly west of Israel. Nineveh is somewhere in the ballpark of about five to 600 miles from Israel. Tarshish is 2,500 miles from Israel. So, Jonah boards this boat to Tarsus, where a sudden storm is thrust upon them. And y'all, like you're thinking Mediterranean Sea, this is probably a really pretty rain shower. It's nothing like that. The storm is so fierce that the ship itself is beginning to break apart under the feet of its passengers. And these sailors, these who are pagan by the way, they're not Israelites, they're pagan sailors, they're from other nations, are doing all they can to keep from drowning, including crying out to their own individual gods. And where's our prophet in the middle of this maelstrom? He's in the bottom part of the ship asleep. And in fact, the ESV uh, specifically translates that Jonah is fast asleep. This dude is out. So much so that it takes the captain of the ship to come and shake him awake. And this pagan captain has to beg Jonah to call out to God in an effort to spare the ship and the lives of those who are on board. And Jonah doesn't, by the way. The sailors cast lots to discern on whose account has this evil come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. That's verse 7. The sailors questioned Jonah Jonah admits to them that he is a Hebrew and that he worships, and I quote, the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He also reveals to them, this is verse 10, that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and these guys now are exceedingly afraid. They ask Jonah what they should do to alleviate the storm. And and y'all, you would think at this point, Jonah would say, well, let me call out to the Lord. Let me repent of my disobedience and let's turn this boat around, bring me back to Israel and I'll do what God has told me to do. I mean, that's kind of my logical thinking. Well, if I'm the one causing this and I know my God is loving and merciful, then I will ask for forgiveness and I'll do what he's told me to do. That's my my train of thought anyway. But Jonah doesn't do that. He He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Jonah's disobedience continues. He is so adamant against going to the city of Nineveh, and we'll find out why in a moment, and it's not pretty, right, it's not good, Uh, that he's literally just like, kill me. Like, I would rather die than go to Nineveh. That's what Jonah says. And it's worth noting how admirable these pagan sailors are compared to this Hebrew prophet. Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea, and they actually refuse to do it at first. Verse 13 says, Nevertheless, this is Jonah chapter 1 still, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They are working hard this entire time to ensure the safety of those who are on board the ship, and Jonah has virtually showed no concern whatsoever. He's actually fine with the prospect of the ship going down and it is only after they wake him up and put him to the test that he even admits that he's actually the reason they're in this mess to begin with. Jonah is then, to the reluctance of these sailors, cast overboard into the ocean, resigning himself, or, or so he thinks anyway, to a watery grave. Let's pause on that. We'll come back to his lack of obedience in just a moment. Let's look back to Jesus. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh and refuses, heading in the opposite direction. Jesus is called to go to the cross. And although he doesn't necessarily want to, and we're going to read that in a second, don't grab your torch and pitchfork just yet. His desire to obey God far exceeds his desire to live. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36-39 to says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42 says, Again for a second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verses 44-46 through through says, He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Timothy Keller points out in his commentary on Jonah something that I hadn't really realized regarding this specific situation that I thought was extremely profound I'd like to share with you this morning. He pointed out that Jesus chose the Garden of Gethsemane specifically for his betrayer to find him. He loved going to the garden, which is how Judas knew where to look for him in the middle of the night. But it was also outside of the city walls and it had direct line of sight to where the soldiers with their torches would be seen approaching. So here is Jesus in the middle of the night where most people were asleep. His disciples are falling asleep. So we're, we're able to reasonably say it's the middle of the night and he's outside the city wall. So even if there was a ruckus, The people who loved him would not be able to come to his defense because they were asleep inside the city walls for the most part. And he had line of sight. He could see the soldiers coming. He had plenty of time to flee and didn't. Jonah's disobedience caused him to flee. Folks, can I tell you this morning that Jesus' obedience caused him to stay. Jonah's disobedience caused him to not give one hoot about anybody else but himself. Jesus' obedience caused him to give his life for the sake of others, for the sake of those who are sitting in this room right here, right now. Where Jonah disobeyed, Jesus obeys. Where Jonah fled, Jesus stayed. I might also add that both are going to suffer in the coming time. Jonah is going to suffer because of his disobedience. Jesus is going to suffer because of his obedience. As an aside, just something for us to chew on like a cheap piece of steak. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He obeys where Jonah disobeys. And so speaking of suffering, let's press on to our next word this morning. Suffering. Suffering is one of those broad words that can apply to life in a lot of different ways. And, and I found uh, no one, no one is exempt from suffering. It is a universal experience throughout the entire planet, across all of our, across all of our, our, our humanity. A, a common experience perception about life, and whether it's right or wrong, I'll leave it to your, discretion, to your discretion, is the perception that life happens in mountaintops and in valleys, that we go through seasons of bad and we go through seasons of good, seasons of peace, seasons of suffering, uh, seasons of joy, seasons of mourning, you name it, so on and so forth. I, I tend to think, and this is not original with me, okay, but I tend to think that life is kind of like a set of train tracks, You're in the train, and on one side of the train, out one window, you see mountaintops, and you look out the other side of the train, at the other window, and you see valleys. Both good and bad tend to happen around us all at the same time. Peace and suffering coexisting alongside one another. Joy and mourning ebbing and flowing out of our lives at different intensities, but often alongside each other. And I believe this is especially true for the Christian, for we have a Fixed mountaintop of joy available for us to keep our eyes upon, and that is Jesus Christ. While the world is shifting around us, the joy of Christ that is set before us is always present and always available. Even so, that doesn't exclude the Christian from suffering. Rather, I believe it helps us to keep our suffering in perspective. All suffering is temporary. Even if we were to suffer every day for the entirety of our lives, that is still no time at all when compared to eternity. And the joy that is found in Jesus Christ not only helps us to keep our suffering in its rightful place in perspective, but it also helps us to endure suffering while remaining faithful to Christ it helps us to remember that we can endure suffering because Christ endured suffering on our behalf. Going back to our passage of Scripture this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here, Jesus is going to use Jonah's time in the belly of the fish, our whale, our fleshly submarine. That's how Leslie Allen put it. I like that That terminology, fleshly submarine, he's going to use that as a way to illustrate and articulate the manner in which he is going to suffer and die. A moment ago, I made mention that Jesus is, or Jesus, Jonas, I'm sorry, I read my notes wrong. The, a moment ago, I made mention that Jonah is going to suffer because of his disobedience. Let's take a look at that. Uh, Where we left off is the sailors who are aboard this boat bound for Tarshish are reluctantly about to throw Jonah overboard into the sea. Jonah chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 says, "'Therefore they called out to the Lord, "'O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life "'and lay not on us innocent blood, "'for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you.' "'So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, "'and the sea ceased from its raging.'" Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So Jonah is cast into the deep of the sea. And and you sort of have to imagine what is going on in Jonah's mind in his life right now. He has resigned himself to the grave. He is cast overboard into the Mediterranean. He's sinking further and further, deeper and deeper. Perhaps he's, he's struggling to hold his breath. Maybe he's not even trying to hold his breath, who knows? But he begins to realize the reality of what is about to happen as he sinks further and further into the deep waters. He realizes that he is approaching his final moments of life, that he is going to die. When all of a sudden, Jonah one seventeen and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I used to think that the fish was a form of punishment for Jonah's disobedience. Surely being stuck in the belly of a fleshly submarine is not very fun, right? I mean, it has to be at least slightly uncomfortable if not outright horrifying. But as many wise commentators have pointed out, the fish is not the vehicle of God's punishment for Jonah's disobedience. The punishment was the storm and the punishment was the almost drowning afterwards. The fish did not serve as the vehicle of Jonah's punishment. The fish served as the vehicle of Jonah's deliverance. This wayward, disobedient prophet is going to suffer for his actions, but he is also going to be delivered from them as well. Listen, we're going we're to talk about salvation in just a moment. That, that is actually the really important place where we're going this morning. But let's camp out right here in his suffering for just a moment. In the belly of the fish, Jonah is going to pray. We find this prayer in Jonah chapter 2, verses 2-9. through nine. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep. We know Jonah suffered in part because of what he prayed from the belly of this fleshly submarine. This isn't the prayer of someone who is at the peak of the mountaintop, isn't it? This is the prayer of someone who has just been through deep waters, literally, and survived by the skin of his teeth. There is nothing short of miraculous regarding Jonah's circumstances. He's drowning, and from out of nowhere, a giant fish swallows him up. He is on a collision course with death, when up until the last moment he is saved. Jonah's suffering, the storm, the drowning, the misery, is let's no let's not make any mistake about it, is because of his refusal to obey God's calling to go to Nineveh. His disobedience leads to suffering. Where Peter wrote, "It is better to suffer for doing good if it is God's will than for doing evil." Well, Jonah is suffering because he has done evil. But when we turn and gaze upon the life of Christ, we see that he is going to suffer not for doing evil, but for doing the ultimate good. And really and truly, he is going to suffer for doing what is the ultimate good. In Matthew 12, y'all remember that Jesus makes a comparison to Jonah's stay in the belly of the fish and his upcoming stay in the heart of the earth. Both are references to the grave. In order order for us to really get what Jesus is getting at here, we need to remember the context of what he's saying. The Pharisees and scribes have demanded a sign. Jesus says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah goes down into the belly of the fish for three days. He spat back out onto dry land. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches against the city. And the city is going to, to a person, by the way, repent of their evil ways. And God is going to spare that city, Nineveh, from destruction. Now, we aren't told exactly every word that Jonah preaches in Nineveh, but we are told that the men of Nineveh, in verse 41 of uh, Matthew 12, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and they will condemn it. Meaning the generation that Jesus is speaking to and all subsequent generations from there will have absolutely no excuse for their sin and absolutely no excuse for their denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The sign is there. It's a giant blinking billboard that says Jesus is the Messiah. Repent and trust in him, or you will not be saved. His suffering upon the cross, followed by his resurrection back to life, will be all the sign or proof that we need Jesus is God. Or in the context of Matthew 12, sticking to the context, that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. I've already mentioned it, but I would just like to further reiterate the suffering of Christ upon our behalf. And I I don't really need to say much outside of just reading what the Bible says here. Uh, In Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 to 35 says, As they went out, uh, they're heading to the, uh, to the cross, by the way. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Matthew 27 verses 45 through 50 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up. His spirit. Jesus suffered immensely. He not only suffered the crucifixion and all of its physical realities, but he also suffered physical beatings and whippings. He suffered the emotional betrayals and abandonments. He suffered by the voice of the mockers, all at the hands of people that he loved. All at the hands of people that he would die to save. Jonah would suffer in the process of getting to Nineveh, and he would suffer because of his own disobedience. Jesus would suffer in the process of going to the cross, and there upon the cross he would suffer even more, and not because he disobeyed, but because he obeyed. Jonah went to a people that he hated and preached what would turn out to be good news. Jesus went to a people that hated him and would die on their behalf to become good news. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He suffers on behalf of the people, indeed the whole world, where Jonah suffered on behalf of himself. And anytime we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't talk about the salvation that that suffering would bring upon our behalf. Which brings us to the final word for this morning, salvation. The reason for Jesus' suffering is for the saving, the deliverance, the salvation of sinners from sin. You cannot talk about Jesus' suffering without talking about the salvation that is provided to sinners by His blood shed upon the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' obedience, Jesus' suffering come together to provide the salvation, the forgiveness of sins for people who could not earn their salvation, but are given it by grace through faith in Christ alone. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's look to the book of Jonah once again for what Jesus is referring to. We'll pick back up at the end of chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. I love that, that imagery there. He couldn't say spit up or spat back, you know. He said vomited. I like that. Good good translation. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, verses six through nine of Jonah three are going to go a bit further into detail regarding the repentance of Nineveh. Verse five says, From the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, where verse five says that? It absolutely meant from the greatest of them, so the kings and the nobles to the least of them, even the animals, all participated in this fasting and this repentance, this this wearing of sackcloth and, and sitting in ashes. Jonah 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The people of Nineveh were on a course for destruction. Their lives were marked by violence, verse 8. They were a warmongering city and really a warmongering empire. They garnered their wealth by taking from other nations, by conquering other peoples, and they were good at it. Their lives so marked by death and violence that the surrounding nations certainly looked upon them with both hatred and fear. Surely the Israelites felt the same way about them. In fact, we find out why Jonah doesn't even want to go to Nineveh in the first place in the first two verses of Jonah chapter 4, where it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful Slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. What we see is God desired to save these violent, warmongering people from the consequences of their sin, and Jonah just could not bear the thought, the possibility, of these people whom he hated to be repented, to repent and be delivered. The people of Nineveh deserved God's wrath against their sin. They deserve to be utterly destroyed, and Jonah was just fine with them receiving the just penalties of their sin. He even goes so far as to use God's gracious and merciful character as an accusation against God in the moment. Jonah reluctantly went to Nineveh after trying to flee to Tarshish, after being cast overboard into the sea, after being swallowed alive by a fleshless submarine, after being vomited up by this fish where the people of Nineveh, by God's grace, would be saved from the just penalty of their sin. They turn away from their sin. They put down their weapons. They recanted their violence. They fasted and cried out to the Lord. Even the cows mooed in grief of the sin of the Ninevites. Salvation came for these Ninevites, and Jonah could not stand it. He was angry. So angry. So angry, in fact, that God spared these people that he begged God to take his life from him twice in chapter 4. But these Ninevite sinners who are spared from destruction will stand, don't forget, they will stand in the judgment and condemn the generations who deny Jesus Christ. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and yet something far greater than Jonah has come. I realize as we come to a close uh, that I haven't given much more uh, Attention to our series, besides what I mentioned in the beginning. My task this morning, my charge, so to speak, is to show you how the book of Jonah points towards Christ in the New Testament. My charge is to show you the something greater than Jonah. We talked about the disobedience of Jonah as compared to the obedience of Christ. We talked about the suffering of Jonah because of that disobedience as compared to the suffering of Christ because of his obedience. And lastly, we talked about the salvation that the Ninevites received to the despair and anger of Jonah as compared to the salvation that we receive to the joy of Christ. Heaven delights when sinners repent and trust in Jesus. The angels sing, the Son rejoices, and the Father is pleased whenever one person receives the gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross obediently to save sinners such as you and I. Where the prophet Jonah despaired and got angry, the Savior Jesus invites and rejoices. This morning, bringing it to us who are in this room, this morning have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior? Do you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins this morning. Romans 10 verses 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There is absolutely no reason for us to complicate the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ past this. You aren't saved by your moral lifestyle. You aren't saved by the heritage of your family or your upbringing. You aren't saved by the amount of money or time you give towards good causes, even if that causes the church. But thankfully, you aren't disqualified from being saved by the reverse of those things either. You are saved wholly, fully, undoubtedly, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart. And, and the Greek conception of believing in the heart, uh, the heart was like the center of all, It's like the center of the person. When you believed in something with your heart, it meant you believed with everything you had. It's more than just this intellectual conviction. It's something that reaches down into the deep parts of us and changes the very way we, we think and speak and act and behave. It's, it's something that takes over the whole person when we believe in our hearts. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This morning, are you saved? What are you banking on to get you into heaven one day when you draw your last breath? Is it the blood of Christ you're banking on or is it something else? I would invite you that after today's service, if you would like to know more about these things, you can come find me, come find Pastor Kyle, come find Pastor Aaron, and we would love to talk with you more about what it means to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. If you don't have time this morning, set up a meeting with us. We'll have coffee, we'll get lunch. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, more important than the relationship you have by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Prioritize that thing. And as the the pastors of this church, and certainly our elders, certainly our deacons, certainly as, I mean, any mature believer in Christ in this room would love to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. We're going to have a time of response. Blake's going to come up and lead us in a song. And then after that, we're going to have communion together. And y'all, it's going to be awesome. I'll tell you that right now. So let me pray for us, and then I'll get off this pulpit. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. I pray, Father, I pray that every person in this room, every soul that is present, would know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would do their work, in their, and that, that work in their heart right now, if it's not already accomplished, that you would draw them by your spirit to conviction of their sin and that they would repent and trust in you. Lord, for the, for the Christians who are in this room, I pray that you would encourage them by your spirit. Lord, this message, confess Christ, believe in him, be saved. It is a message that is worthy of our lives. It is a message that is worthy of us to take to the nations, to take to our city, to take to our community, to take to our families and our friends, Lord. May you give the Christians in this room, myself included, the the conviction, the passion, and the courage to be able to speak these things to those who do not know you, Lord. And Lord, we pause again to look upon the cross of Christ in which your son died to save us from the just penalty of our sin. Lord, we did not deserve the salvation you granted to us, But because of your great love for us, by your grace, by your mercy, you bestow it upon us anyway. Thank you, Father. As we come into this time of worship and communion, I pray that you'd have your way with this place as you always do. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.